Cam. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. We mark AIDS awareness this week with bringing you this radio piece by What's the Word? In the mid-1980s, plays about AIDS started to emerge in the United States. In part, these early plays and the plays that followed were calls to action. They documented the devastation within a community and showed how little was being done. Blending advocacy and art, the plays also gave us individual characters whose lives touched us deeply. On this program, we'll hear about three landmark American plays dealing with the AIDS crisis. Don Shuey talks about Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart. Catherine Sheehy discusses Paula Vogel's The Baltimore Waltz. And Robert Vorlicki explores Tony Kirshner's Pulitzer Prize winning play, Angels in America. Stay tuned for America AIDS Drama. And when we got to Phoenix, there's a police van waiting for us, and all the police are in complete protective rubber clothing. They look like astronauts. And by the time we got to the hospital where his mother had fixed up his room real nice, Albert was dead. Anna, I don't want anyone to know. Carl, it's not a crime. It's an illness. Anna, I don't want anybody to know. It's your decision. Just don't tell anyone what you do for a living. Pryor says to this Mormon mother, I'm a homosexual with AIDS. I can just imagine what you... To which Hannah responds, No, you can't. Imagine... The things in my head. You don't make assumptions about me, mister. I won't make them about you. After a beat, Pryor responds, fair enough. In the mid-1980s, plays about AIDS started to emerge in the United States. Don Shuey. The disease was still emerging and quite mysterious, and it had, in fact, only recently been named. It had gone through a few different names. And there was a lot of fear and mystery and anxiety. In part, these early plays and the plays that followed were calls to action. They documented the devastation within a community and showed how little was being done. Blending advocacy and art, the plays also gave us individual characters whose lives touched us deeply. I'm Sally Plaxon. On this edition of What's the Word?, we'll hear about three landmark American plays dealing with the AIDS crisis. Don Shuey talks about Larry Kramer's 1985 play, The Normal Heart. It was both a reflection of political activity that had taken place and also very much a call to action. Catherine Sheehy discusses Paula Vogel's The Baltimore Waltz. I think the thing that really sets Baltimore Waltz apart from other AIDS plays and made it truly revolutionary sort of in its time was that Paula places at the heart of this story a brother-sister relationship. And Robert Vorlicki explores Tony Kushner's Pulitzer Prize-winning play Angels in America. For Kushner, a critical piece of interconnectedness between people 
resides in their ability to imagine lives other than their own and the validity and significance and integrity of those lives. Join us on this edition of What's the Word? American AIDS Drama. If your heart always did what a normal heart should do. One of the things that the normal heart is about is about the lack of press coverage of AIDS in the early days, whereas other much smaller fleeting health crises like a Tylenol scare that killed seven people or Legionnaire's disease that afflicted 20 people were front page news for weeks and months. AIDS took years to get to the front page. Don Shuey is a theater critic and journalist. He's the author of a biography of Sam Shepard and editor of Out Front, contemporary gay and lesbian plays. Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart was first produced by Joseph Papp at the Public Theater in 1985. There weren't any novels or movies or even TV shows about AIDS, so these plays about AIDS, certainly in New York where they premiered, were informational. These plays conveyed information that you weren't necessarily getting elsewhere, but probably more than that, what was being depicted on stage was also very much going on in the lives of the audience members. So there was something really unusually live and real going on in the theater when these plays premiered. The Normal Heart was based on real events. Specifically, the community outrage and concern and activism that led to the creation of Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was the first AIDS service organization which became the model for AIDS service organizations around the world. And Larry Kramer was instrumental as a person and as a community member in starting GMHC. The play captures the dialogues that were taking place within the gay community. About sex and the role of the sexual revolution and what sex meant to gay men, means to gay men, what it means to be public, the various attitudes from self-confidence to extreme fright about being public as a gay person and being politically active, participating in demonstrations or protests, having your name identified as a public spokesperson for any gay cause. There was a lot of trepidation about all of those things. The Normal Heart opens in the waiting room of Dr. Emma Bruckner's office. It is May 1981, the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And we see in a very short, compact scene, a whole waiting room full of anxious gay men seeing their doctor for various mysterious symptoms that are turning out to be the first emergence of AIDS. And the doctor prevailing upon Ned Weeks, the Larry Kramer character, to use his legendary big mouth to alert the world that something very big was happening and people needed to know about it. Weeks, who is there to write about the disease as well as to be examined, asks the doctor what's happening. She says, I don't know. Don't even have any good clues yet. Even if they found out tomorrow what's happening, it takes years to find out how to cure and prevent anything. All I know is this disease is the most insidious killer I've ever seen or studied or heard about, and I think we're seeing only the tip of the iceberg. And I'm afraid it's on the rampage. I'm frightened nobody important is going to give a damn because it seems to be happening mostly to gay men. She continues. As soon as you start screaming, you get treated like a nutcase. And then you're ostracized and rendered worthless just when you need cooperation most. This hospital sent its report of our first cases to the medical journals over a year ago. 
The New England Journal of Medicine has finally published it, and last week, which brought you running, the Times ran something on some inside page, very inside, page 20. If you remember, Legionnaire's disease, toxic shock, they both hit the front page of the Times the minute they happened, and stayed there until somebody did something. The front page of the Times has a way of inspiring action. So, the Ned Weeks character sets about to alert the media, the media aren't listening, one of the essential things that the play is about is about homophobia, fear of homosexuals and social stigma that prevented government officials and the press from covering the emergence of the AIDS epidemic because it was seen as something happening to gay people who were scary. There's also the internalized homophobia of gay people being ashamed and scared and hiding out because of the social stigma, not wanting to subject themselves to that. Shuey was at the original production at the Public Theater. The audience was on two banks of bleachers facing each other, and the play took place on the stage in between. So the audience was looking at the characters and looking at the rest of the audience. Off to the side was a wall with a list of statistics and various facts and figures and names of people who had died. So in the room, there was just such a palpable presence of this is something that's going on right here, right now. Not that at the time anybody needed any reminding. The title of the play comes from a W.H. Auden poem, September 1st, 1939. It's a beautiful poem. It's a long poem, which actually, curious enough, people refer to a lot after September 11th because it's set on a September day and it's very emotional and very pertinent. It includes the line, The windiest militant trash important persons shout is not so crude as our wish. What Mad Nijinsky wrote about Diaghilev is true of the normal heart. For the air bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. This reminds us, says Shuey, that in addition to the political message of the play, there is also a love affair between Weeks and a fashion reporter for the New York Times, Felix Turner, who dies of AIDS at the end of the play. Ned Weeks, this angry, infuriated, righteously angry political activist, is someone who wants to be loved, wants to be loved for himself as an individual, and that is something that drives the play. The AIDS crisis, and certainly AIDS plays, but really AIDS crisis in general, brought a human face to gay people for many Americans. People who didn't necessarily know gay people could see, oh, these are people who get sick, who have lovers, who are real people. And it sounds absurd to say it, but that was news for a lot of people. And seeing the human drama of people taking care of their lovers was very powerful. It's funny that the title of the play isn't, you know, shout to the rooftops or bring down the government or we demand our rights. It's about the normal heart and the desire for love. In 2004, The Normal Heart was presented by the Worth Street Theatre Company and housed at the Public Theatre. The revival was very interesting to look at it and see how it holds up as drama because it's constructed so tightly and tensely and it's full of antagonism and tension. It's useful to look at the media reception of AIDS from a historical perspective. And certain things, sadly, are still the same. There's still a lot of ignorance. There's still a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of shame about 
being gay, being openly gay, having HIV and AIDS, some stuff hasn't gone away. I'm Sally Claxon, and you're listening to What's the Word? A program made possible through support from the Modern Language Association of America, an organization dedicated to encouraging the study of language and literature. What we don't have is so really sets Baltimore Waltz apart from other AIDS plays and made it truly revolutionary sort of in its time was that Paula places at the heart of this story a brother-sister relationship. Catherine Sheehy is the chair of the Department of Dramaturgy and Dramatic Criticism at the Yale School of Drama and the resident dramaturge at the Yale Repertory Theater. She's talking about Paula Vogel's play The Baltimore Waltz. She removes the sexuality component of the AIDS play. I think that when the disease was new, the diagnosis of AIDS really revealed, before it revealed a person's illness, revealed their sexuality. Vogel wrote the play as a response to her brother Carl's death from AIDS in 1988. In fact, she publishes with the play a letter that he wrote to her about his wishes for his own funeral and she requests and gives permission for everyone who ever does the play to reprint the letter. The letter begins. Dear Paula, I thought I would jot down some of my thoughts about the, shall we say, production values of my ceremony. Oh God, I can hear you groaning. Everybody wants to direct. Well, I want a good show even though my role has been reduced involuntarily from player to prop. First, concerning the choice between a religious ceremony and a memorial service, I know the family considers my Anglican observances as irrelevant as Shinto. However, I wish prayers in some recognizably traditional form to be said. Carl asks that music be included, perhaps something from Foray's Requiem. But my favorite song is I Dream of Genie, and I wouldn't mind a spiritual like Steal Away. Steal away, steal away. Also, perhaps nearer my God to thee. Didn't Jeanette McDonald sing that divinely in San Francisco? Finally, would you read or have read A.E. Hausman's Loveliest of Trees? Well, my dear, that's that. Should I be laying with Grandma and Papa Ben? Do stop by for a visit from year to year and feel free to chat. You'll find me a good listener. Love, brother. The trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. The Baltimore Waltz is a play for three actors. And I might even say for three characters. One actress, the actress plays Anna. Another actor plays her brother Carl. And then there's a third actor whom Paula describes as playing the third man. The third man actually plays a bunch of other parts in the play. So it's a three-actor play that has lots of different characters in it. The play's narrative unfolds on two levels. The first sort of real-time level takes place at 
Carl's hospital room in the Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore, where Anna has come to visit him as he languishes from AIDS. And she thinks about how Carl had invited her on a trip to Europe that she never took him up on. So the second narrative layer of the play, and the part that takes up actually the body of the play, takes place in a kind of grand European tour of the mind that Anna and Carl go on. Johns Hopkins, the real setting of the play, kind of bookends it, but the rest of the play takes place in an imaginative space. In a key imaginative twist, Vogel displaces AIDS in a different form onto Anna, a schoolteacher. When Anna imagines the disease, she imagines it's something that she has acquired. And she gives it another name. She calls it ATD, Acquired Toilet Disease. It's a disease that is common to single elementary school teachers, essentially school morms. So Paula has taken what is probably the most innocent of professions and the innocent of moral dispositions and made them the target of this bizarre disease, which is acquired, of all things, from toilet seats. I think that it functions also as a way to keep the issue of Carl's sexuality for Anna in the background. She becomes the one who decides she's going to live with sexual abandon in her last remaining time, that she's going to change from her schoolmarmish, meek demeanor to this female Lothario going through Europe on her back. So Carl's sexuality gets kind of put to the side. He's the one who's taking in the sights and home been bed early. Until in Paris, his bunny rabbit, the stuffed rabbit he's taken with him, becomes a sort of center of his sexuality as he begins to meet these strange men with different color berets in the toilets. And so I think that Paula has done this really beautiful and quite brilliant thing of having Anna's consciousness also on display where she's trying to understand her brother's sexuality and put herself in his place. And yet the sexual practices that probably landed him in the hospital begin to intrude upon her own fantasy. Vogel's humor and her focus on Carl and Anna, says Sheehy, soothed audiences' apprehension about the sexuality at the heart of the play. When you have an AIDS play, it's suddenly about a schoolmarm who doesn't have AIDS, but the acquired toilet disease that she's gotten from the filthy habits of the first graders whom she teaches, you suddenly are disarmed from your discomfort at talking about homosexuality. Then, of course, what Paula does is that she puts lots of sexuality into Anna's character. So she takes you on a kind of a roller coaster ride where you feel sort of, oh, tick, 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 going up. This is not so bad. And then suddenly you look over the precipice and the play tips over into that comic wild ride that she takes you on, which then, to continue the roller coaster metaphor, comes completely to that sort of neck jerking halt when we realize that Carl has in fact died and we're back in the Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore when we've actually in fact never left. The character of the third man recalls the film of the same name. Set in post-World War II Vienna, it stars Orson Welles as Harry Lyme, a charming rogue who has been stealing medicine from the local hospital and putting it on the black market, causing children to die agonizing deaths. So that when Paula has chosen to use this charming, mercurial, third man character, I think she's really pointing at the kind of despair, the kind of two-faced quality of the healthcare profession in regard to AIDS medication and the difficulty of finding AIDS medication. Carl and Anna, part of their grand tour strategy is that they're going to end up at this quack, Dr. Todesrochen's general hospital in Vienna, where he practices a bizarre and 
very off-putting kind of medicine with odd effects. So I think that Paula has used this kind of displacement to make a statement about the difficulty of getting medication for this very serious disease. The tone of the Baltimore waltz, says Sheehy, is gentler than that of the normal heart or angels in America. Its tone is far more elegiac. The play is dedicated at the beginning of the published edition to my brother Carl because I cannot sew, which is an obvious reference to the AIDS quilt. I hope that people get a chance to see Baltimore Waltz because while the experience on the page is delightful, I think the experience in the theater is even more powerful, particularly as the play comes to its close where Hannah realizes that her brother is gone and he is suddenly inanimate on his hospital bed. He was there, he is there no more, but his body remains. Carl sits up and as a kind of automaton and he and Anna waltz and of course the eponymous Baltimore waltz takes place there at the end of the play. In a really moving theatrical moment, Paula has done an incredible coup de théâtre. I'm Sally Claxon, and you're listening to What's the Word, American AIDS Drama. Angels in America began in workshop at the Eureka Theater in San Francisco, and it had its world premiere there in 1991. Robert Vorlicky is Director of Theater Studies in the Department of Drama at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. He's the editor of Tony Kushner in Conversation, a collection of interviews. Kushner's Pulitzer Prize winning Angels in America, Part 1, Millennium Approaches, and Part 2, Perestroika, premiered in Los Angeles in 1992 and opened on Broadway in 1993. Ten years later, it was produced on HBO. Part one takes place over a four-month period, from October 1985 to January 1986. Most of the action takes place in New York City, along with scenes that are outside of New York that include the fantastic, which is when characters visit from other centuries. The play itself is over a span of four months, and... It's also, in terms of the political positioning of the play, smack in the middle of the Reagan years. And the play itself is always informed by President Reagan's administration's silence surrounding the issue of AIDS. Early in Millennium Approaches, we meet the character of Pryor Walter, whose story is a central focus of the play. A story where the character lives through the departure, some would call it the abandonment, by his partner in the face of the disease, and how that immediate intimate story becomes an embodiment of a national crisis. The play's subtitle, A Gay Fantasia on National Themes, reflects the surreal dimension of Kushner's work. He wants to move between the mortal and the immortal worlds, to be able to speak about something which is so overwhelming in its magnitude, pain, and urgency that through a dramatization between the real and the non-real, it provides a space for him to talk about philosophical issues and theological 
social, cultural, political issues in ways that the drama can handle. There are four main groupings of characters. Out gay characters, a Mormon family, historical figures, and angels. In the case of the out gay characters, there's Lewis Ironson, who's a 20-something word processor in the Second Circuit Court in New York, and his partner of four and a half years when the play begins, Prior Walter, who's sometimes designer, caterer. And the third out character is Belize, former drag queen and registered nurse, who is also Pryor's former lover. And as a man of color in America, he's incredibly grounded and realistic in his opinions about politics in America. The name of the Mormon family is Pitt. There's Hannah Pitt, the mom from Salt Lake City, her son, Joe Pitt, and his wife, Harper. Then there are the historical figures. Kushner brings on stage amidst his fictional characters the embodiment of Roy Cohen, the very successful New York lawyer who also was pivotal in securing the executions of the Rosenbergs. And in the course of this play, which is also true to Roy's life, is a closeted gay man who dies of AIDS. The fourth cluster of characters are the angels. The Angel of America is part of the grouping of the continental principalities, the angels who are embodiments of each of the continents of the globe. We learn in the play that God fled the world in 1906 when the San Francisco earthquake took place. Ever since, people have become diasporic, homeless, and in constant motion. The angels have watched this helpless. Their wish is to reconnect with order. They turn to Pryor, they turn to an ill man as prophet to be able to convince mortals to stay put because from the perception of the angels, movement is what causes suffering. Movement is what precipitates chaos. What Pryor comes to accept and totally embrace by the end of the play is that change is not only inevitable, but desirable. Why? Because that is human nature. That is what people do. And one can't stop that. Progress can only happen by moving forward. Moving forward also embraces, as is Pryor's wish and dedication at the end of the epilogue, more life. And more life is to move forward with change. Ultimately, Pryor is not afraid to speak up to the angels. It's through the angels' embodiment on stage that the mortal character is able to clarify for himself that he's not ready to die. He's not ready to join them in heaven. He's not ready to give over to the disease. He is angry if a God exists, because if God fled at the earthquake, and if there is such a thing as God, where's God now as people are dying by the thousands of AIDS? What good is God if God, in fact, deserts heaven? Hannah Pitt, the Mormon mother, encompasses an important part of Kushner's world ethic. A very telling moment 
occurs in St. Vincent's emergency room where Hannah has brought Pryor after his collapse at the Mormon's Visitors Center in Manhattan. In the course of introducing each other more specifically to one another, Pryor says to this Mormon mother, I'm a homosexual with AIDS. I can just imagine what you, to which Hannah responds, no, you can't imagine the things in my head. You don't make assumptions about me, mister. I won't make them about you. After a beat, Pryor responds, fair enough. For Kushner, a critical piece of interconnectedness between people resides in their ability to imagine lives other than their own and the validity and significance and integrity of those lives. In this particular moment, Pryor has jumped the gun in assuming that someone whose life choices are other than his own is incapable of empathy and of understanding who he is, what his own desires and dreams and pains and joys are. Hannah, a most loving, generous human being, is able to say to Pryor, it is crucial to be able to see outside of oneself if, in fact, you're committed to creating foundations of love, understanding, and empathy that move beyond mere tolerance. This edition of What's the Word? American AIDS Drama was written, produced, and narrated by Sally Plaxon. Technical Director, Duke Marcos. Production Coordinator, Lee Morgan. Production Engineer, Steve Weiss. For a list of works mentioned on this program, please write The Modern Language Association of America, 